agrees too far to two kids. My, my four favorite parts of Christmas are decorating a tree, being with family, Christmas lights, and then it's Jesus' birthday. What's your favorite parts of Christmas? Hi, Grace 42. I'm Kellen. I like my favorite day of Christmas is Christmas, where baby Jesus' birthday is here, and I was, my favorite part of Christmas is decorating my tree. Good morning, I'm Sunshine Holtz. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Nephtali will be humbled, and there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned, and they will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of the Heaven's armies will make this happen. Hey Grace242. In week 11 of the 2016 NFL season, the Green Bay Packers lost to the 4-6 Washington Redskins. The loss dropped Green Bay to a 4-6 record and a two-game deficit behind division leaders Minnesota and Detroit. The Packers were without their starting running back Eddie Lacy and the defense had given up more than 40 points in the prior two contests. The loss against Washington had prompted most Packer fans, including yours truly, to write off the season as a lost cause. It was into this bleak landscape that Aaron Rodgers spoke one of his most memorable and at the same time least believable lines. While standing at his locker on Wednesday after the loss, Rodgers delivered these words. I feel like we can run the table. I really do. I think uh, the offense is starting to click. Well, despite the unlikely claim, the Packers did exactly what Rodgers said that they would do. They won all six remaining games, clinching the divisional title in the final game of the season against Detroit. The Packers would advance to the playoffs where they would beat the Giants and the Cowboys, only to be squashed like a bug by Atlanta in the NFC Championship game. I remember I was so angry at the abysmal showing that at halftime I went outside to put Christmas lights on my house, which was a more effective and less stressful use of my time. People remember the run the table comment because it seemed so unlikely all signs pointed to this being a losing season and no playoffs for the Packers. Yet Rodgers expressed confidence that the team had what was necessary to win out. Some might say that Rodgers' run the table comment was optimistic. But I think his comment was more hopeful than it was optimistic. There's a difference between optimism and hope. I'm not big on this guy, but I think that Cornell West speaks truth when he distinguishes between optimism and hope. West says that optimism is the belief that things will get better based on evidence. Quoting from West, he says, Hope and optimism are different. 
Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there to believe things are going to be better. According to West, optimism is a very rational and secular construct. Conversely, hope requires faith. Hope, quote, looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all, doesn't look good at all, end quote. The evidence is bad. The evidence suggests that things will only likely get worse, not better. But hope goes beyond the evidence and looks to something greater. When the chips are down, when all the arrows point downward, when things seem to be spiraling out of control, when the train is careening off the tracks, that's when hope looks beyond the evidence to something greater. Human psychology bears this out. In 2016, a study was published where the authors of the journal article, Giving Hope a Sporting Chance, studied fans of soccer teams in the South Australian National Football League. Researchers attended games where bottom tier teams were playing top tier teams. The study revealed that fans of top tier teams had both high optimism and high hope that their team would win. Well, this makes sense because optimism looks at the evidence and the evidence is that there's going to be a good result. And the evidence that the top tier team has put on tape is that they're playing better, they've notched more wins, their players are of a higher caliber, and so the evidence shows that this team is likely to win. Conversely, the fans of lower tier teams had low optimism, but high hope that their team would win. Because hope goes beyond the evidence to greater possibilities. The study concluded, Hope may arise when likelihood seems low, simply because that is when it is needed most. Hope is not merely a measure of one's confidence in achieving one's goal. Rather, it arises in lower likelihood and may bolster individuals who see little chance of success. When the chips are down and the landscape looks bleak and the evidence isn't there, that's when hope comes in. As I write this part of my message over the course of the past 12 hours, Cindy Lesage's sister-in-law had a stroke. Todd Komarowski's dad is in the ICU because his blood pressure is dropping. Bob Hartline's brother-in-law passed away from COVID. And Karen Barnes's brother, Ralph, is in immediate need of a liver transplant. And again, all of these prayer requests came in over the course of the last 12 hours. And between when I wrote this part of my message and me delivering it now to you, Grant Goldstein is in the hospital. When you look at the evidence in our world right now, what does the evidence say? My friend Seth, who I've mentioned numerous times before, his church in California just went fully online again because the state went back into lockdown. And according to the lockdown, Seth's not even supposed to leave his house. In Seth's same state, a video was released of a woman who owns a restaurant. California had closed off indoor dining for restaurants, so this restaurant owner moved her dining outside. And then California closed outdoor dining as well. And immediately next door to her restaurant, the movie industry, which is being allowed to remain open, has set up tents and picnic tables for serving the movie industry staff food. Let's watch. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face, That's safe. This is safe. 50 feet away. 
This woman is closed down, but literally across the same slab of pavement, the movie industry can be opened. As many of you know, our daughter Bryn has an allergy to tree nuts, which earned her a helicopter flight to Children's Hospital when she was three. And there's a bakery called Nut Freeze that baked goods that were completely free of nuts. And just this week, Nut Freeze announced that they are going out of business. At a high school football game in Florida, one team took the field carrying a flag that read Blue Lives Matter, while the other team knelt for the national anthem. The game ended with a brawl, with police having to separate the two sides, and helmets and fists were flying, and some parents even jumped out of the stands to join the melee. And one team was hit with $500 in fines, and 10 players were suspended. When you look at the evidence in our world right now, what does it suggest? When you look at the evidence, what does it say? And to me, the evidence says that the present world is a mess, and the evidence suggests that in the future, the world will only continue to devolve further into the mess. The evidence, I'm just being honest right now, the evidence does not suggest a bright future. I was recently listening to a podcast with two church leadership guys. Their names are Kerry Newhoff and Tom Rainier. And I agree with them when they say that this is the new world now. We're not going back to some pre-2020 version of society. Tom Rainier said that he heard a CEO being interviewed and that CEO was asked about the future of his business. And the CEO said this, he said, once this is all over, our company will be fine. And Tom Rainier said that when he heard that, he shivered because that company is in trouble. If that's the thinking at the top that they're just gonna wait around till all this is over and they'll be fine, that company will fail. This is the new world and the evidence bears that out. If optimism is looking at the evidence and concluding that the future looks bright or that things that will be better, then I am no optimist. Because when I look at the evidence, I see the arrow pointing down, not up. Now, some of you might be saying, Bill, what are you doing? You've just spent the whole first part of your message depressing everybody. How is this helping anybody? How are you helping when you're just being depressing? I'm being forthright because I want us to deeply and significantly connect our current circumstances with the circumstances that God's people were facing in Isaiah 9. I'm being forthright because the Bible was written to real people with real lives, in real homes, in real nations, in real history. It was written to real people who were facing real life issues, who experienced the same real emotions and feelings that you and I experience today. These people cried like we cry. They grieved like we grieved. They burned with anger like we burn with anger. They've had sleepless nights under the burden of chronic stress just like we have had. They've cursed and they've sworn like we do. They've screamed in their solitude when no one was listening to let it all out like we have. And our same God who saw everything those people went through sees everything that we go through today. So when I say that we have so much in common with the people of Zebulun and Naphtali in Isaiah 9, that isn't some just theoretical or academic statement. God's people in Zebulun and Naphtali experienced the same emotions, sorrows, and stresses that we experience today. We cannot fully appreciate God's word until we embrace that this is God's word written to them, through them, to us. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 1. 
Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Isaiah delivers this prophecy as the northern kingdom of Israel is feeling the pressure of this marching Assyrian army. The Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser applied pressure on Israel by invading the northern territories of Naphtali and Zebulun from about 734 to 732 BC. Because these areas lie on the northern boundary of the kingdom, they were the first to be invaded. Look at 2 Kings 15, verse 29. During Pekah's reign, King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria attacked Israel again, and he captured the towns of Ejon, Abel Beth Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor. He also conquered the regions of Gilead, Galilee, and all of Naphtali, and he took the people to Assyria as captives. Tiglath-Pileser would conquer an area and then deport the conquered peoples to a different land where they would essentially work as slaves for the Assyrian Empire. This re relocation of people had the added benefit of quelling potential rebellions. Not only were Zebulun and Naphtali on the northern boundary of Israel, they were prime real estate for an invading army to seize control of. Look back at Isaiah 9 verse 1. The road that runs between the Jordan and the sea was a primary trade route that ran between Mesopotamia and Egypt. Furthermore, thanks to the Jordan River, this was fertile agricultural territory. The attacks on Naphtali and Zebulun were the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom. This was only 10 years before Assyria captured the capital city Samaria, marking the end to the northern kingdom of Israel. So putting ourselves in the Israelites' shoes, we're looking at the evidence and it's not good. You know how powerful and ruthless the Assyrian army has been with other nations. You've heard how quickly other nations have been reduced to vassal states under the might of the Assyrian Empire. Here's an Assyrian relief depicting soldiers playing catch with heads of their conquered enemies. You know how these invaders attack, kill, and destroy. And you know that if you manage to survive the invasion, you'll be deported where you'll work for the rest of your life as a slave for the empire. And these are the people that are knocking on your front door. And if you're an Israelite examining the evidence, then the prophecy of Isaiah 9 seems highly unlikely. Look at the evidence in Isaiah 9, verse 3. The prophet says, You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. Um, the evidence I see is not that the nation of Israel will get larger, but rather that the nation of Assyria will get larger, and as the nation of Assyria gets larger, the nation of Israel will shrink. That's the evidence I see. Furthermore, I don't see how we can possibly rejoice when we're surrounded by sorrow. And warriors dividing the plunder is what the Assyrian soldiers are going to do to us. Look at the evidence in 9 verse 4. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. God, you say that the yoke will be broken, but we're about to have yokes placed on our necks as we're marched off as slaves into exile. Furthermore, I know you routed the Midianites at the hands of Gideon, but I don't see any leader like that emerging to help us in this hour. Look at the evidence in verse 5. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms, blood-stained by war, will all be burned. 
they will be fuel for the fire. <laughs> I'm sorry, God, but the boot of the warrior is hanging over our heads right now, and it's about to squash us. And it's not the uniforms of the warriors that will be burned, it's our cities that are about to be burned. Examining the evidence in 732 BC paints a horrific picture of the future, and it was a horrific future for Israel. There was no reason for optimism. I hope that we can resonate with these Israelites who had very little reason for optimism. Optimism rationally engages the evidence and looks for indicators that things will get better. Hope, conversely, goes beyond the evidence to something greater. I connect with these Israelites when they had very little reason for optimism. That's why I think we as God's people in 2020 ought not concern ourselves with optimism. It's the reason why I'm not an optimist. Rather, we as God's people in 2020 need to live our hope. I've been noticing a theme for us as we head into Christmas. Under normal circumstances, the Christmas season elicits all sorts of warm, fuzzy feelings that we look forward to embracing during Christmas time. We look forward to feeling joy. We look forward to feeling peace. We look forward to feeling friendship. We look forward to feeling love. We look forward to feeling the magic. But I think a lot of us are arriving to Christmas this year only to notice a lack of those feelings that we enjoy. We don't feel warm. We don't feel joyful. We don't feel generous. We don't feel the magic. And it's alarming because we're used to feeling all those things at this time of year. And it's going to be tempting for us to want to do everything that we can to try to manufacture those feelings. It's going to be tempting for us this Christmas to make getting those feelings that we're used to having the goal this Christmas season. We might attend celebration service only to feel nothing because we're in a different location, we're all wearing masks, we have this social distancing thing, we can't hang out afterwards because we gotta clean the place afterwards, it doesn't feel like home for us, it feels really temporary, and so we're not feeling the magic like we have in years past. We might attend house church worship only to miss seeing everybody together and remembering when we were all together at the nature preserve and the magic that we had there. And many of us might actually feel sorrow instead of joy because someone we know is in the hospital, someone we know has COVID, someone died this past year. People of God, do not get wrapped up in chasing after the feelings this Christmas season. Instead, live a life that declares the hope that you have. I'm having to rely on the hope that we have more than ever this season. Because count me as one who normally enjoys all the wonderful feelings of Christmas, but who this year is not feeling it. Not feeling the joy, not feeling the warmth. I mean, I've got my Christmas lights on behind me, and so I have these visual cues that it's Christmas. But you want to talk about feelings? They don't match the season. They don't match what I've become accustomed to this time of year. So I'm having to live into that hope. I'm having to pick up my Advent book every night before I go to bed and read scripture and remind myself of where my hope is, even if I don't feel it. In my car, I'm having to turn on worship music and sing out the lyrics, paying attention to what I'm hearing and singing them like I believe them, to remind myself of where my hope is. I'm having to spend more time with Christian friends of mine, pastor friends of mine, on the phone, 
reminding ourselves of whom we serve and declaring our hope in Christ. The unified voice of Scripture calls us to praise the name of Jesus regardless of our circumstances. We are to praise Him at all times, even when the evidence is bad. Because hope goes beyond the circumstances to something greater. In this case, hope goes beyond the circumstances to someone greater. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Who is this light? Who is this yoke breaker? Who is this Midian destroyer? Who is this rod breaker? We'll answer that question in part two of this message next week.